A quick fact before we get into today's episode. There are less than 10,000 bilbies left in Australia. 10,000? I had no idea it was so few. Which is why I'll be buying a bright pink Daryl Lee milk chocolate bilby this Easter. The good folks at Daryl Lee will again donate 20 cents from every deliciously smooth and creamy milk chocolate bilby sold to the Save the Bilby Fund. So do your bit and buy a Daryl Lee bilby for mum. Buy one for the kids. Buy one for your Uncle Steve. And help this cute and very important Australian animal survive for decades more. You can't miss them. Just look for the bright pink Daryl Lee Bilby and Woolworth stores right across Australia, which is where I hope we see many more Bilbies in years to come. Daryl Lee makes it better. Welcome to The Five of My Life with me, Nigel Marsh. As an author, adman and theologian, I've always been interested in people's stories. Not just those with a high profile, but people from all walks of life, regardless of fame. Which is why I created this show. Each guest who takes the Five of My Life challenge chooses a favourite film, book, song, place and possession. They tell me their choices in advance so I can research them, but they don't tell me why they've chosen them. That's the subject of our conversation. It's amazing what you can learn when discussing someone's five choices. I hope you enjoy listening to the show as much as I enjoy making it. Stuart Dickinson, Australia's most capped rugby referee, officiating at three World Cups, a record, was the wrong person for the robber to attempt to shoot at point-blank range. As modest as he is impressive, Stuart is a true leader and a one-off. Stuart Dickinson, welcome to Five of My Life. Nigel, thanks for having me. It's, uh, it's a great honour. Uh, well, I've been looking forward to this for weeks, mate. So thank you so much for coming on. Before we get into your choices, uh, have you been listening to any episodes? You've got any standout stories or guests from the past episodes? Yeah, so uh, look, there's there's been a heap of them. Monica McInerney was, was great, and I say that specifically about being the writer, but also my wife and mother-in-law love her books and, and everything else. So uh, so it's great and really enjoyed Chris Marshall. Oh, he's, he's hilarious, wasn't he? Um, I did listen to Albo the other day, so... Uh, so that's that's always good to hear the um, the other side of the politicians because you only get one side whether people are blue white for whichever team they're playing for etc. So that's always interesting to hear that. But it's great. It's just a great concept, and as I said, a real honour to be here. No, oh, well, mate, well, I'm really looking forward. It's to- only me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really looking forward to hearing you chat about your choices. And as always on Five of My Life, we start with the film, and you've chosen Richard Attenborough's anti-apartheid epic. Cry Freedom, 1987 it was released, two and a half hours long you put me through, mate. Tell me about that choice. Look, I think it's just, I think it's probably a growth piece at the end of the day where, you know, I was only a couple of years out of school, had a, you know, some really good mates and and sort of said, oh, let's have a look at this thing. And I think you're, you're starting to open the, the world up as it were, you know, and, uh, and certainly through school, I'd taken an interest in some of the politics and you know, you start to open your eyes up and get beyond your own, you know, two square feet and see the rest of the world. So had seen and read a lot about Desmond Tutu and had seen a, you know, a fair bit of stuff with, with Africa. And then this film came out and, uh, and it's just a, a really powerful story, you know, and a couple of Muppets like Washington and, um, you know, Kevin Klein inside of that. But the, the powerful story there of, of that change, what people went through, human nature, the, that whole gamut really around, 
life and humanity at the end of the day. And, and I guess, you know, we're witnessing some of that now with our friend Vlad and Ukraine and everything else. And, you know, why don't we learn from the past yeah. at the end of the day? So I hadn't seen the film uh, and obviously I, I watched it because you chose it. The Stephen Biko story is deeply upsetting. Uh, I, I mean, just I went down a rabbit hole about him after having watched the film and I was a little bit conflicted by the film because it, um, have you watched it recently or is it ages ago? You I haven't watched it again okay. for a while, so you've sort of got the, the top line view yeah. at the end of the day. So, so for me, it's like a film in two parts. So you've got the Biko story, which is incredible, but it's a two and a half hour long film. It then, after the poor bastard dies, you then get into the amazing story about Donald Woods, the journalist, yes. trying to escape which is an amazing real-life story. But the film, I think Attenborough made a mistake because the film should have just been about the things that you've just been talking about, about the the appalling injustice of apartheid and all those poor, poor people who died in prison at the hands of the police and blah, blah, blah. So a real eye-opener. And for many of my generation, it was all Mandela and not, you know, I didn't know much about Stephen Bigo and it's, it's terribly upsetting and sad and you're and you're right we, we don't seem to uh you know we solve one issue and we just create another yeah look it's uh you know i i hadn't heard of bk before at that time and then then obviously you you, you see all that in the and, and i think probably in with attenborough doing the other side as well i think he's probably just trying to balance that up around what that looked like but but ultimately at the end of the day i mean that's you know that's courage personified by both people just trying to be able to tell a story. And if we looked at that, if people would watch that film today and they go, oh, my goodness, how could that even happen? Yeah. Well, you know, it did and that was what the times were and everything else. So I think that was really an entree into really just opening your eyes up and seeing what, what's out there. And then, uh, you know, for, for me, you know, we'll probably get onto some rugby stuff later and whatever else, but but seeing that whole South African piece and then being over there, I mean, it's a it's a special place. If people haven't been there, I mean, it's it's incredible. Well, we're staying in the 80s for your second choice on Five of My Life. Uh, 1989, an ad executive for 30 years decided to write his first book and it became the most successful book Australia has ever seen. It sold over 9 million copies. Bryce Courtney's The Power of One is your choice on Five of My Life. Tell us about that, Stuart. Actually, there's a bit of relevance there for you, isn't it, mate? Ad executive. <laughs> <laughs> that sold winning uh, winning books and things. So um, look, look, I think you know there's a there's plenty of other books that I've read and and everything else. And you talked about you know let's have one of the favourites. But I, th- I think that's very much in the same vein around that of just just that discovery piece around and that human story of triumph of personal growth, I guess, as it were, the circumstances in which he grew up, and it's obviously based partially, mostly, whatever, a percentage on his life as as to what he did, and the history inside of that as well, of where it came from. You know, we look at the British over there as, as well, you know, starting the first lot of concentration camps and all that sort of stuff, you know, that, uh, and so I, I think there's a, there's a history piece and there's a humanity piece, there's a, a growth piece, a learning piece, Something that it was different from our world, as I said, my two square feet that you live in when you when you're a young kid growing up, and uh, and so I think that was uh, that was really important just just to see that, and it really um, it really I guess just took me on a bit of a journey, I guess at, at the end of the day, and he writes very powerfully, and 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 you can really get inside the book and and really visualise all of that, so uh, so it's um yeah an amazing story. It's, to it's, read. it's a real page turner um one of the themes in it is pk the hero gets bullied mercilessly at school and one of the ways that he learns apart from learning how to box 
uh, to deal with that is to become a storyteller. Yes. And, and you know, Find My Life is about stories. But it made me want to ask you about how you deal and have dealt with referee abuse. So be it <laughs> be it parents, be it spectators, be it players. So, you know, someone tells you to sling your hook and that goes with the territory. And as Australia's most capped referee, you must have had to cop a bit of that. What strategies do you use to stay calm and not tell them to F off back? Look, I, th- I think probably one of those things is it's a learnt skill. At the end of the day, so when you first start, you know, you like all those things, you're just trying to do your best. And so you'll take a lot of that on board of, oh, was I really that bad, etc. And then as you grow a bit more and then you understand what you're doing and you get better and better and then you get that confidence in yourself and you're there knowing what you're doing, making those decisions. So it's uh, it becomes, it's not about a popularity contest. They don't have to like you. It's just about being respected and that's the players on the field and then the punters off field. Well, they've paid their money. They're passionate about their team and all those sorts of things. And, and so you, you have no control over that at the end of the day. But it was funny places you would go and travel to and there'd be people screaming at you and things written about you and all that sort of stuff, you know. And, uh, and then people would pull up a chair if they found you. Oh, I'd like to have a chat with you about something. Yeah, sure. No worries. Give them five minutes or 10 minutes, whatever it is, because it costs nothing to do that. And they go, Oh, wow. Okay. Oh, that's a bit different. I didn't think you, you're not as bad as I thought you were. Okay, very good. So that's fine. So I think it's just having that consciousness yourself of just being very clear on what you're doing. You're there as a decision maker in the game. You're a facilitator. They know the laws of the game. They know what they're doing. And you've just got to, you know, I would say to captains before a game, you know, I'll make sure it's a fair contest. Then it's up to you blokes whether it's even because I think that's probably one of those things for me that, and I guess maybe those movies and books and everything else, why they had a, a bit of a profound effect really was about, I guess, that equity and fairness issue for people you know just that's fair and then if you're better than the other team or and can do it properly and more skillful then you should be rewarded as opposed to other teams and things that kill the ball or are just so negative which just spoils the day for everybody what well, one of the things researching you and looking through your highlights reel which is <laughs> <a> rather <laughs> rather fantastic you you have refereed some of the most important games in my life that I've been at in the stadium uh, and I won't hold you to blame for the Lions but there you go it is incredibly impressive Stuart how you stay calm I mean that that is for me is not a natural thing if you've got 80,000 people shouting at you your decision you know is going to affect the result of a game and and you exude this aura of calmness do they coach that in you do they tell you how to do it or you just it's just bitter experience I, th- I think there's probably a bit of both in that of course so when you start off you you know you're pretty raw and got lots of things to chip away at and then eventually you become better and better there's always a conversation so it's like anything the the books there about how to do something and some people can do that and some people can't so there becomes an innate part inside of you of how you deal with that. Are you willing to learn? Are you coachable? You know, can can you review? And ultimately, the, the first part is, yes, you've got to make mistakes. So you've got to learn. You've got to get the scars on your back. And then eventually you get to a stage. And if I'm catching younger referees now, you know, you'll see that. Oh, I've seen this movie before. Right. That's number 42. That's what I'm going to do here. Or that's a number 27 or whichever way you decide to do that. But it only just comes through experience there. And then, but it's about having that innate, I guess, skill in the first place to be able to try and do that. And, and, and I guess ultimately that just comes from the place of where you're standing for that match and who you're being at the end of the day. So I'm very clear that I'm refereeing a game of rugby here and it's about the players at the end of the day so they can have a great game and, and you can create a place where they can play. So if, you know, the ultimate thing was that if they're all going up, then you're the one with ice in your veins and you've got to just stay cool and calm. And once they've finished 
you know, going off their head as they may occasionally do, then you, you're the calming voice and the calming influence inside of that. I, I love some of the tips and tricks that we have uh, talked about previously. And one of them my, my son told me about where <laughs> if, if you've got a guy that's, you know, two foot taller than you and six stone, you know, heavier than you and looks incredibly violent and imposing and he's doing something wrong and you say to his captain, could you bring the number eight over? So the number eight is the bloke who's doing the thing that's wrong and he comes over to his captain and you ignore him and you talk to the captain in front of this bloke and you say to the captain, listen, your number eight is being a bit of a doofus. If he does that again, he's going for an early shot. And the technique of you not talking to the big bloke, he's standing there and he becomes a little schoolboy because you're talking about him in front of him but not addressing him. And then you say to the captain, so could you have a word with him, mate? Because, you know, he's going to spoil his day. And then you walk off and you go, brilliant, brilliant. Whereas an unexperienced person would try and talk direct to that bloke who who might give you the evil eye. Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's just one of those little things. And you, you know that from, from running businesses where the way you operate and, and there's a law book, like there's a set of rules at work and all that sort of stuff. Ultimately, it's about how people deal with that. And so inside of those ones, you know, it's about not making it personal, but really getting the message across. And ultimately, at the end of the day, you know, when you're calling the the captain out, you know, you've got the big tribal chief out of the tent. And then other times I've done stuff where you'll talk to them. You you might talk to the player one-on-one as you're going through and saying, mate, the last thing you want from me is to call you out because then the coach is going to say to you afterwards, and what were you blokes talking about? So you don't want to make a spectacle for as a player for yourself. So, you know, if you can do it, Firmly but kindly, and uh, and they know, and it's one of those things, you know, you know that I know that you know that I know that you're in a bit of trouble here, mate, and they skulk away and off they go. Oh, I love it. Now, there's two other questions I wanted to ask you based around your book choice, Stuart. The first is PK goes through a bit of a religious journey, so he grew up in a religious family and environment, and he turns his back on it, and I wouldn't mind you talking to your religious journey if there is if there is one. Yeah, look, we grew up and it was Methodist and we would go to church on a Sunday and then Sunday school and all those sorts of things. So it was just a fun thing with other kids and having friends and all that sort of stuff. So, and then, uh, you know, at some point we'd sort of didn't really go anymore. So, you know, for me, probably now it's more about, you know, hatched, matched and dispatched (laughs) that you, uh, (laughs) that you get to. And having said that, I, I, get it and understand that for a whole lot of people, whatever that happens to be, if if that's a, a faith or something that you believe in that gets you through and it's a and gives you a standard set of morals and guiding principles and so on and so forth, then so be it. And I think you've got to respect people for as much as being an atheist or a Christian or a Hindu or a Muslim or anything else around that. It, it's it's what people are doing for them, for their rock, their pillar to you know, their North Star, whatever that may be. Uh, and I think that's important to acknowledge that for people. And there's, I think there's two different sort of streams to it. There's a belief set, which is, I completely agree, people can believe whatever gets them through and provides meaning. But there's also sometimes, and I, and I put my dear mum in this, a community thing where in reality, she wouldn't really know what the local church actually believes anyway, but it's very, very important in her life because that's where she meets everyone on Sunday and, and they raise money for charity and, and et cetera, et cetera. It's, just, it, it's almost as equally valuable a role to knit a community together if that's where you find your tribe. Yeah, I, I think that's a really a really good point. Uh, and I think that's often missed. I know 
talking to some people in the country now that they're finding there's a lot of, you know, around sport and other things, volunteers are starting to disappear and all that sort of stuff. And uh, and I think that sense of community, that's that's a whole nother question around that now of mobile phones and, you know, it's all about me and all those sorts of things. So I think I think that plays a really crucial part anywhere because, you know, we've had a pandemic and people working from home and all that sort of things. Now, it, it had a physical effect on people and a medical effect on people, but it hasn't changed the DNA that we are all creatures that want to be together and we want to have a community and we want to be part of something. So there's a there's a balance there that needs needs to uh, needs to be had. The second and last question on the book I wanted to ask you is is Bryce, who, who wrote the book, had a had two separate careers. I mean, he, he was an advertising person and then he became an author. How have you found your own transition? Because, you know, Australia's most successful referee for a number of years, and then you're now a very successful consultant, but that doesn't involve you wearing, you know, boots and a whistle. You're, <laughs> you're, you're talking to CEOs and in boardrooms. It is, was it a welcome change or difficult? Uh, no, look, it was, a, it was a good change. I think it was one of those things where, you know, when I made the decision, I'm, I'm very lucky that, that I got to make the choice. So some people either get dropped or they get injured and they can't do it anymore. Well, I, I made a choice. I'd been doing it for 16 or 17 years. And so it was the opportunity then arose just to say, okay, well, let's review this. Where am I? You know, if I look at it from a point of view that I was sort of 26 or something when I started through to 43. And so it was a conscious decision then. So look, commercially, the worst decision I made in my life because <laughs> it's not like uh, it's not like we were remunerated like the players were. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, standard thing was uh, if you don't like the contract, good luck with whatever else you choose to do. So mm, that's an interesting way of operating. But having said all of that, I wouldn't trade it for, for anything. The life experiences and things you've, that you've got inside of that, and we'll probably talk a bit more about that later. But but ultimately, it was, a, it was a difficult transition. You know, if I look back in hindsight, could I have planned it a bit better? Yeah, probably could have. I mean, I looked at it when I was coming through to say, well, I'm getting out of normal work. I want to get back into some part-time work. I did some study, so I surprised myself. I was that bad at school. I failed recess, so I ended up getting an MBA. So, um, so that was really cool. So I had a an ambition to to put something there inside of that. And ultimately, it was really about finding. So it was always about leadership roles, but but realistically, the ultimate place now is I've, I've probably had if I if I got to highlight three jobs really where where I haven't worked for a living, as it were, and, and one was being in the in the police that you know amazing job to be able to do the second one my hobby turned into my occupation refereeing so I didn't work for you know 17 years or whatever it was and then now with this business that I have with a mate of mine Steve with a consulting business you know around high performance and leadership and you know really transformation of people and organizations and and so you know, that's all of those skills coming in. It took a, a little while to get there, but all these things happen for a reason. If I if I didn't retire that year and go to Queensland with the family to get a particular job up there, and then when I was on the way back, this one of the guys at another consulting firm got a hold of me and said, we'd like you to come and work. And then Steve and I met and got on really well. So the doors always open and close for a particular reason. So it was a great journey. It's incredibly varied and impressive when you... Uh well, when you research yourself, mate, I, I have really enjoyed digging into the backstory. 
We're moving to your third choice. And yet again, we're in the 1980s, clearly an important decade for you. We are going to the second single off the third album of Mental as Anything, Cats and Dogs. You have chosen the 1981 song Too Many Times. Too many times, too many times. Tell us about that. Uh, look, again, there could have been a million songs you pick and books and things, and it's it's not even really that song in particular. It's just that whole genre there for, for a number of reasons that brings a smile to my face is that, you know, we were pretty lucky in growing up in that in that era there where you get to the pub and you see the band, so Midnight Oil, NXS, you've got Hoodoo Gurus, Mental as Anything, all these other bands that end up making it big or whatever else, and these poor kids now don't get to see as much as that, and I look at you know, with my kids as well. And so it's just memories of great times inside of that. And then you and I share the great luxury of having twin daughters, of course, and uh, and I've got an older son as well. And so the other thing around that now is that whilst they were younger and growing up, my wife and I would play that on road trips and whatever else. So they're singing away with these songs and enjoying it and they still have them now and play them and love them. And and, they, and the girls in particular say, oh, you were so lucky growing up in the 80s, all this music you had and all this stuff. And we say, yes, we know, absolutely. <laughs> so, so you can't I, take that from us. I hadn't heard that song before. And I can't get it. It's an earworm. Yeah. I can't get it out of my head. It is absolutely funny. And then I went down this rabbit hole, as I tend to do, all about Greedy Smith. Yes. What a legend. I mean, even if it was just that song and live it up, you yep. go, that, that, that's, that's enough for any lifetime. Just a wonderful, catchy, danceable, you know, mosh pit song, but with some serious themes in it. Yeah. So uh, it, it's... <laughs> Too many times I've woken up, seen the world through bloodshot eyes. Correct, wait. He, he's obviously <laughs> been on a bender, uh, and he's been on a bender because he's broken up with his missus. So uh, just a couple of questions for you. Well, there's three, actually, but the first couple of questions is, A, your relationship with the demon drink. It was, has that always been a healthy one? B, and any appalling relationship sagas you'd like to share with me and my listeners? And the third question is, uh, they were amazing mentalists. They were all artists. Reg Mombasa and, I mean, these guys were, you know, they were painting as well as turning up at your local pub. So there you go. Take that in any order you want. Or start oh, with a drink. Jeez, I'm a simple bloke. You have to remind me of those. So I'll start with a drink. <laughs> so, so it is funny like that. I mean, you know, it's too many times you wake up and when we're all 18 in inverted commas, of course, you know, you start to have a drink and discover all those sorts of things. So, yes, there's been some of those nights there where... Uh, you, you were worse for wear and <laughs> I've got 18-year-old daughters and a nearly 21-year-old bloke. So, uh, yes, it's funny when they share a couple of videos when they've been out with their mates or whatever else. So all those things, that rite of passage or, or whatever else. And so that was all a bit of fun along the way. I, I've touched wood. I've been pretty lucky not to not to have any major issues inside of that from, from a drinking point of view. And I you can have a serious stand for that where it does cause a lot of issues for people. There are things there. So, you know, everything in moderation. I think, uh, and probably the sporting stuff, you know, going through there was, you know, as I worked my way through refereeing at a younger age, you know, Saturday morning, it was the old things you'd have to be with the Jew wipers and do the fourth grade game at 10 o'clock in the morning and hang around to run touch in the afternoon for first grade. And so Friday nights, you know, by choice, couldn't be a big one because sure. I was committed to doing those sorts of things. So yeah, look, I, I love a little, a great red wine every now and then or a G&T and whatever else. Um, but I, I am no expert on 
any of those sorts of things in that. So it's just a nice, quiet drink occasionally. How did you meet Fiona? We met Fiona through- Fiona being your wife, sorry. That's for right. Yeah. Yes, yes. She's the ever-suffering poor thing. She's still putting up with me. We met through a mate of mine from high school. So right. they, they went to uni. So she was a teacher- Originally, so they went to they went to university together, and and he was saying, oh, you know, I've got a friend of mine, and uh, they were just good mates, and you know, you should meet her, etc. Yeah, okay, whatever. And we were down at his place um, on a Saturday night or something, and she was going to come down. So, so she's come and knocked on the door, and and I've said to Dale, this mate of mine, you know, look, hang on, I'll go there and answer the door. So she's going, oh, hi, I'm Fiona. I said, great, nice night to meet. Who, who, what are you after? And she's going, oh, oh, and the smile sort of disappeared to a. Have I got the right house? And I said, uh, well, how can I help you? Oh, and this is Dale's house, isn't it? I said, Dale? Nah, sorry, there's no Dale that's here. Oh, hang on, he's two houses down there. You're looking for that one. She, I'm sure I've been there. And then he comes around the corner. He couldn't hold himself. So <laughs> that was her introduction to me. And she's uh, she's still been with me ever since. God bless. And, and ha- how long have you, have you guys been an item? Uh, since, so we'll be together 30 years this year, so 1992. Congratulations. So, yeah, so, um, actually it's quite funny. So 8th of August 1992, and that's, our daughters were born on the 8th of August as well. Well, 15th of August 1992 is Kate and I. Oh, there you go. We are living parallel lives, mate, with the twin daughters and the and the 30-year um, union. It. And we got married in 95, so, you know, we're coming in, what, 27 years this year. Good so. on you, mate. Um, we're coming to your place, your fourth choice on Five of My Life, and I am delighted that you have gone there, mate. You have chosen on a rugby union field. Surprise me. Why have you chosen that? <laughs> oh, look, you know, you said one of the favourite things, and, and sure, love the beaches, love travelling, and there's a whole lot of other places I could put, but I think, I think really with that is that I did a whole lot of work and was supported by a whole lot of people to to get where I did at, at a top level and to referee and, and have all these wonderful, wonderful experiences. But I think part of that as well is that um, I was very conscious that, you know, that that as a, a place was an ama- a privileged position to be. So, you know, you, you'll understand that other people that know rugby of going to a ground, particularly for us as a young kid from Australia watching Six Nations and as it was five nations as it was back then, etc., and and going to some of these amazing grounds and South Africa and you know, all around the world, but but going to some of these amazing grounds and then understanding that say for a Six Nations game, people will wait an eternity to get a ticket. They're in a lottery in their local club or something like that. So for them to go to that game is like a lifetime achievement, or it's something so special. Not only just for the players we push those aside it's it's for that crowd those people that are there and we've all been to sporting events but to understand the history and understand that the privilege of of doing that being there was amazing so I was very very conscious of that every time of going out there uh, I know John Eel said I saw a quote from him some time ago where he'd find someone in a stand and look at them and and so for us you know we we plied our trade off offshore so I think the worst time most amount of time not the worst the most amount of time I spent away was probably six months in a year wow in, um, in one block 
No, no, no. So oh, you're yeah, you're, no. you're away to New Zealand this weekend, and then there. So by the time I'm out, up three days here, two weeks there, something there, something there. So so there's a long time. So it's a big sacrifice, you know, for family. You know, particularly with Fiona. I mean, we had three kids under two at one stage. You know, so when I can't do what I do without her doing what what she did inside of that. You know, so I'm I'm eternally grateful. And ultimately, you've got to recognise that 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 it can be a very selfish career in in some ways. But I took her away when we could, et cetera, et cetera. But, but back to the matter at hand there is really about seeing the, the faces in the crowd and understanding how much they're enjoying that and, and it's their grand final every week and they want their team to win, et cetera. And then, then of course, there's the other part around that is for whatever's going on in your life, for 80 minutes, you can just leave it alone. Yeah. Whether you're doing a schoolboys game out the back of Upper Kumbaka West, or whether you're doing a first grade game, or whether you're doing a test match, and all those sorts of things. So, so I think that was part of it. And then the other, the other part, of course, is then being in that world of high performance and excellence. And you know, I've been very privileged to to be on the football field with some of the greatest footballers that have ever played the game, and to see the skill and the way they operate, and you know, be involved inside of all of that. You know, it's always been a fascination for me, and it's always been around learning for me and then understanding people and all of those sorts of things, you know. So why do some players falter at this level when they're really good there? Why can't some referees make it or whatever the case may be? So it's a it's certainly a, a gladiatorial place that that is certainly at that highest level. There's something unique about each of those people to actually get there and be on that on that field, let alone representing their country. And so you know, you could be in Wales and it's just, you know, wonderful because you're, you're hearing the Welsh National Anthem and then they might be playing against Scotland. So you hear the, the Scottish Anthem or whatever it may be, the Irish, you know, etc. to be, you know, the distance you and I are from the table away from a harker on, you know, 20, 30, 40 occasions in my career and some people only get to see it on the TV or from a, you know, from a distance in the crowd, so as to speak, then, uh, you know, pretty, pretty special Pretty well, special so, so times. Looking at your, I mean, uh, there, there was one particular highlight reel, I think, at your, your a dinner held in your honour, but uh, looking at lots of YouTube clips, you have been in the centre of the action at a number of, I mean, I mean, the biggest games in the world, I mean, over, over a decade and more. If you had to choose, if I pressed you for the most memorable, I mean, I know there's, I mean, you've done Tri-Nations, Lions, World Cups, there, there isn't, I mean, there's no level you haven't been at, but if I had to press you for the most memorable match, what would you choose? There's probably two or three there that for different reasons, so maybe a fourth one if I had, obviously my first ever test match. You know, so you're representing Australia B test. I mean, it was Papua New Guinea versus Tahiti, 98 nil, 45 degrees. But <laughs> I, I pulled on an Australian jersey. You know, I was representing Australia, so a childhood dream had yeah, had come true. Good on you. But clearly, the you know one of the biggest ones then was my first A international, which, which was Wales and South Africa in 97, 98. Pardon me. And they were rebuilding Cardiff Farms Park for the World Cup the following year. So lucky me, got to go and referee at the old Wembley Stadium. So as a young kid growing up, seeing the soccer there and uh, on TV, so this legendary field, a stadium, just incredible to be there. Then I had two of the the world's 
best leading referees from up there, so Jim Fleming and Ed Morrison. Then I got to meet the great Bill McLaren. So for those oh, that don't wonderful. know, if you're a rugby league tragic, think Ray Warren, but on steroids, you know, one of the greatest callers in the game. And so I got to meet him and spend a little bit of time with him before the game, which was amazing. And that was incredible. And I mean, a, a by story of that was that when I went up to Scotland the first time after that might have been 12 months later or something like that, one of the guys said, oh, Bill McLaren's invited you around for morning tea. I said, oh, that's lovely. Isn't that nice? And he said, he doesn't normally invite people around for morning tea. Went, oh, okay. Well, that's lovely. So I got to go and spend time with Bill and his wife, Bette, see his, and it reminds me of seeing stories on Bruce McAvaney of these notes that he took and the dedication, the the preciseness with which he did all of his research so that he could honour the game and the people and everything else. So that was amazing inside of that, of doing that game. I think the South Africans were on a winning streak. The Welsh were under Graham Henry as the great redeemer and the Welsh were actually winning until a guy came on as a streaker. And, uh, and then, you know, that sort of cut the momentum for them. But the South Africans came back. I gave a penalty try inside of that. Robin McBride, who was the Welsh hooker afterwards, he, he had a beer and he just said, fair play to mate. First test, I didn't think you'd have the balls to do that. So, uh, <laughs> so that was, that was amazing. The other one, of course, is then the, the Lions. I, I did the Lions in South Africa, British and Irish Lions. So they, you know, they, they tour every four years for those that aren't aware of rugby. And it, it is a massive following. And it's one of the great things that whilst we have a professional game, but it has stayed as that, it's a professional era, but they've stayed as that tradition, which is just awesome inside of the game. And the thousands of people that travel, the sea of red that go there. So I had the third test, the South Africans had won the series, but it was still an amazing event at, at um, Johannesburg there. It's in the cauldron down below, full house, just the noise there. Again, that whole privileged piece of actually I'm refereeing this game and seeing these people that have travelled put the hard-earned money to, to 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 get there to see this, you know, every four years and just an incredible experience. Um, and then probably on the final ones, just purely around just atmosphere. So I did Ireland versus England at Twickenham and they it was the, the day they were opening the new South Stand. So it used to be a wooden deck and then they moved it around and they eventually closed it off. So what you see now is a, a full circular stadium. And the noise in that place was unbelievable. And it was just one of those things that you still get goosebumps now of, you know, the the English guys, you could, you're playing advantage because you can look up and you can see, and this is one of the greatest things about refereeing where you can, you're on song and you can see the game and say something's going to come here and give these guys an opportunity to score. It doesn't matter whether it's the green team, the white team, whichever, who cares? It's just the game. And so they start to spin the ball out wide and you can see the overlap coming and then the final pass goes and the crowd and the crescendo of this noise is incredible. So I sort of turn right as the winger comes running around, whoever's going to score. And, and it's just a matter of just this noise going, oh, you're in your ears as you're running in. And, and I looked into the crowd there at one stage and, and you could see, you know, a couple of blokes there just jumping for joy and just unbridled, you know, love of the game, their team, they've scored, et cetera. And you just go, geez, I'm a lucky bloke. Geez, what a place to be. Oh, just wonderful. Well, I'm going to be a fun sponge and flip it around and we can edit this bit out if uh, if you don't want to answer the question. But if uh, you were on the therapist's couch and I was to say, (laughs) what's the one mistake that makes you wake up screaming? (laughs) If there is one. There's there's two. Oh, (laughs) excellent. One, there's probably a thousand of them, but... (laughs) There's, there's one that wakes up screaming, just going, what are you doing, you idiot? Actually, they both do part of that. The, the first one is uh, 
up in Queensland. I think I talked about originally, you know, the the you know the young tree bends with the wind and stands taller, so as to speak. So I was doing a game in Queensland and um, whoever they were playing, and there was an injury. There's a penalty to Queensland. John Eels was setting up for the kick at goal. Then there was an injury, so I wandered across and saw the player was coming back and and for whatever reason John has just decided to well he's coming back we'll just kick the goal so bang and it sails through and and then I've blown the whistle and just gone no no stop we haven't called time back on again you know and like you idiot and and of course then he lines it up and and I think he got the kick again no he might have missed it this time <laughs> what whatever it did but but stupid me has just gone mate just, you know the 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 older version says just blow the whistle for the goal, you know. Who yeah. cares? It went off, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And the other one that is just, uh, you know, it, it's you talked about that calmness and all that sort of stuff. And I'm sure you've had all those times where where you're looking at something and your mind is just somewhere else for whatever reason. So I had a game with South Africa and uh, New Zealand. Yes, and one of the New Zealand blokes has picked a South African bloke up and and sort of dropped him, and it should have been it should have been a yellow card or a red card or something. Yeah, a, deci- a better decision should have been made. Whatever it was, I think it was, should have been a red card. I think I gave a yellow card or a penalty or something. No, I gave a red card. That's right. And then in my report was you know A B C D F. Then they go, have you had a look at the video? And I said, well, yeah, and no. And then you look at the video, and I and I've seen A B and C. And then you look at the video and, and then there's D, or there's X, Y, and Z that's actually happened. I said, well, I didn't see that. Well, look at you looking straight at it. And so I'm there just looking at this thing and then whatever I saw, whatever wow. I thought, and you just go, you know, throw my hands at the mercy of the court. You were doing so, your shopping list. <laughs> I was off somewhere else, but you know, planet Mars must have looked good or something like that. So it's just funny how you can just do those things and you just go, wow, that's that's ordinary. And then there was plenty of press written and all that sort of stuff. So yeah. I, I think you are. I mean, I, I, I need to thank you, mate, because you have been a legend for the game and the service that you've given it. And there aren't many professions where you turn up on Monday and, and 10 million people have watched what you've done at the weekend on telly and felt, you know, perfectly fine in criticising or whatever. So you, you've just, you know, it's a sensation. And, and on a different podcast, I could talk to you for 10 hours just about rugby, but I'm not going to. I'm going to move you on to my favourite choice <laughs> on Five of My Life, which is the possession. And, and you have chosen as your possession on Five of My Life, your New South Wales Police Commissioner's Medal of Valour. Describe it and tell us the story behind it. Yeah, I think probably in choosing this one was really probably about, you know, there's lots of other things I've got and whatever. There'd be memorial things from rugby, etc. But this one, I think, was probably some of those defining moments in life. So, you know, to, to get straight to the point, I mean, there was a time there that, that it was either the exit door and you're being put in the ground by whoever's going to put you in there, or you can come out the other side. So you are a police on. officer at this That's state. right, yeah. yeah. So I was working um, in a um, place called Special Operations Group, which was one of the original sort of anti-theft squads, undercover type thing or whatever else. And uh, so we used to probably, one of the things, so we used to get around in, you know, pretty crappy gear and all that sort of stuff. It was actually, it was funny. One of the guys that was working at Australian Rugby at the time, and I was still making my way through as a referee. And he said, oh, I saw him at a game. And, and he said, oh, I saw you on Thursday. Said, oh, why didn't you say hello? He said, I didn't want to. He said, you looked like shit. And I could just tell you were looking for something. And something was going on, and then the next minute you guys all pulled your guns out and grabbed some bloke and did something or other. So I said, probably better you didn't then, mate, no dramas <laughs> at all. Anyway, so we, we used to get around and, and look at some of the hotspots of crime and all that sort of stuff, and uh, so we were doing a, a night shift or something, so I think it was 
two o'clock or three o'clock in the morning or whatever else. And we drove up and saw a guy sort of go around the side of one of the hotels. So I've sort of bailed out and my mate drove around the corner and he was going to come up and drive into the car park. So I've sort of had a bit of a skulk around and uh, and then heard a noise. And obviously my brain later on would have said, okay, that was him breaking a glass to get in there. So I've sort of wandered into this alcove and I'm in the light and then there's some darkness there where the guys, you can sort of make a bit of a silhouette and the next minute he's sort of come out and, um, you know, goodness gracious me, what are you doing here in other language, of course? <laughs> and so I've just sort of – and then I could see him in in his right hand. He had a – you know, obviously oh, there was a, a pistol or a revolver or something but a weapon and so he's brought that up. So I've just sort of played a little bit dumb and sort of, oh, what's going on, mate, you know, because I was in shitty clothes and whatever else so he would have known who I was. Anyway, um, then he started to get a bit more serious and he's gone bang and jabbed it in and a few more words. So then I've just identified myself as a police officer, mate. You know, this is not going to be good for you, mate. You know, suggest you probably put that down, et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, then, then it was on. You know, he, was, uh, he wasn't going to take no for an answer. So the, one of the things I did do is I had my hand. So it, it's in my stomach and I've got my left hand sort of he's, grabbing him. He's got him. a gun in your yeah, stomach. So he's put it in. And nice. Then, and then saying things along the lines of I'm going to, shoot you and kill you, fill in the blanks of yep. all the nice language, you know, that his grandmother wouldn't want to hear. And then so I grabbed the top of the gun and then for some reason in my head I just went, get your finger in behind the trigger. So ah, so okay. the old, you know, yep. bird finger, social finger, just bang, just straight in behind the uh, straight in behind the trigger and then and um, I've got a little scar on there now that still stays there and sort of so I've, I've ended up got the gun with both hands you know now so we're having a wrestle and a fight and he's telling me what he's going to do to me and all that sort of stuff and anyway we came barreling out of this thing and the partner that was in the car had come up and he couldn't see us and then he just he was probably 20 meters away and there's a bollard there and we've gone flying back and I've just gone straight to the bollard on my back and still held on to this bloke and then wrestled with him a bit more. But but Craig was saying at the time, he said, I just saw you bloke shoot out. And he said, I could see it was a fight for life. Right. Not just a wrestle of some pissed idiot or whatever else. And so anyway, we wrestled around a bit more and Craig came across and we helped grab, grab the gun off him, subdued him, put the handcuffs on him. And then had a look at the gun and, and it was a revolver. So I opened it up and he went, oh, I was feeding him, mate. He's got six in the chamber here. So, uh, yeah, good. <laughs> he, he was going to try and do what he did. So we managed to subdue him and people came from everywhere and then he got locked up and, you know, went, went to court and all that sort of stuff and got what he got and that was life and I moved on. And, and that night, did you go home and burst into tears, start shaking, faint or, or you know, any post-traumatic anything or just a just a day in the life of, of no i mean we went obviously i hit my back and so I went up to hospital and then my boss at the time had rang the the oldies so the old man came up you know and she you're right mate and you're, yeah no i'm okay and uh and then there's that time afterwards where you know there's there's some days there where you sort of sit and go holy shit and that was the that was the whole point of it of you know there's either exit stage left or what sure. are you going to do and so there's the, so i guess part of the reason is that I guess a lot of people talk about being tested or, you know, I'd do this and I'd do that. Well, I guess in my own mind that I was tested and, and I did something about it and, you know, we could clean something up. The The interesting part of that was, and I think it was a cusp of change inside of the cops here where there's a lot of old school people, oh, you don't need to see those psychologists, you'll be right, mate, have a beer and 400 and you'll be okay. I think one of the really good things that was part of that, and I, I know this gets towards this mental health piece for everybody now and everything else, was that... Yeah, my boss at the time was very clear. He said, no, mate, you go and speak to the people. So, you know, yeah, there, there was tears and things like that along, you know, and, and, you know, any of those traumatic type things where you're, oh, 
you know, you're, you're reviewing that and saying, holy hell, you know, what's happened? But then when I went to see the psychologist and, and she was fantastic, I can't remember her name now, but, but she was, you know, wonderful, wonderful person and, you know, really professional in what she'd done. And the great thing was that when I went there, you know, she talked about just being open and vulnerable. What are you feeling? And so I would, well, I'm feeling this, this, and this. Great. That's exactly where you should be. You should be at this stage. Then the next time you'd go, well, I'm feeling this, this, and this now. Awesome. That's exactly where you should be. So I was able to ride through a process and then come out the other end at the end of the day. So you can then compartmentalize that and put it away and then move on without having to relive something like that. So I think that's part of the thing for anybody is to be able to talk about things to, you know, you're never going to forget it. It's always going to be part of what you do, but you need to compartmentalise that and close it off, as it were, because there's so many people that don't do that and that's the issues they get. What an amazing story. And and, and that's what the, the Medal of Valour was for. I mean, I, yeah. I've read the citation, Extreme Bravery. You basically disarmed a armed felon who was pointing a gun at you point blank. I didn't realise it was in your beer gut, mate. I thought <laughs> that's it. That's I thought it. maybe there was like a, a couple of feet between you. Not no, no. <laughs> no, we were close and personal and, uh, yeah. He, well, fought, he fought the law and the law won. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll, I'll, I'll try and remember the finger in the trigger trick. It's That's like, it. Not those people who say, oh, no, if a shark attacks you, punch it on the nose. You go, yeah, right. As if I'm going to be thinking, <laughs> punch yeah. it on the nose. I'm going to be screaming. That, yeah. That's it. it. It's been an absolute delight. Thank you for sharing your five, mate. There is a sixth question. I ask all my guests, who would you like to hear on Five of My Life next and why? I'm going to nominate a friend of mine, uh, Alison Myrams. You've met Alison. She is an amazing individual, is the CEO of a construction company called Roberts Co., uh, which was Roberts Pizzerotti, and then the, the, the family have now bought that out. And so it's, a, it's an Australian-owned tier one construction company that is taking on, I guess, the industry and looking at transforming that industry around, you know, a five-day working week and the way it operates and how they do things, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, a, a bit like the business that, that we've got now is around that of, you know, people making a stand and how they work with people, et cetera. And what she's done is it got an amazing story for when she started inside of that industry, the boys club, even then at a CEO level where you've still got some of these people in the industry that still playing off against her and that organisation, I guess, for, for want of a better term, not understanding that, you know, these changes need to happen because of, you know, a number of things of suicides, marriages, breakdowns, all those sorts of things, because an industry has said, no, mate, we've just got to keep working six days a week because that's what we've always done. So so she's got an amazing story to, to tell about that and changing and transforming an industry and people and, uh, and growing that business, which is awesome. Well, what a great recommendation. We will chase her up. Stuart Dickinson, thank you so much for uh, sharing your stories on Five My Life. It's been great to be here. Thank you, Nigel. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you follow Five of My Life, you might enjoy my latest book, Smart, Stupid and 60. In it, I write about a number of the issues discussed on the show. It's the 20-year follow-on from my first book, Fat, Forty and Fired. If you have any feedback on the book or suggestions for the show, please get in touch via my website, nigelmarsh.com. 